Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Birds are on our minds today. We're going to be talking about anticoagulant rodenticide. That's a quick fix for controlling the rat and mice population, but it's now having an effect on birds of prey. We'll hear about a place called Hope, a local raptor rehabilitator here in Connecticut, about how it's impacting birds across our state. After ingesting this poison, there is very little that can be done to save the birds. We'll also hear about legislation to limit the use of these poisons and alternatives to rodenticide. The traditional snap traps aren't the only way to keep out the mice. And later, we'll also hear from the Connecticut Audubon Society. They're celebrating their 125th anniversary and have a special birding challenge to mark the occasion. But first, joining us to help us understand how rodenticide impacts all kinds of life is Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christine. Oh, I am so happy to be here and to have this opportunity to speak about such an important topic. And want to start the show with uh, Rob on Twitter, who shares that we live in Roxbury, Connecticut, and have many hawks, red-tailed, red-shouldered, and occasionally coopers, and also a lot of baird or barred owls. Thank you so much, Rob, for helping us kick off our show today. And Christine, did you have something you want to share with what birds you're seeing? Uh, we have a lot of different kinds of birds of prey in the state. We're very lucky because there are actually 10 families worldwide, and eight of those families are here in Connecticut. So there's a lot of opportunity to see birds of prey if you know what you're looking for and you pay attention. I'm going to try to figure out what I'm looking at sometimes when I see birds, to be quite honest. Um, how did you first get interested in birds of prey? Well, for me, it started um, back when I was just a toddler. I was about three years old. And I came into the living room where my father was standing in front of a bay window. And he was looking out the window and he was laughing and he was smiling and he was just full of life, just very happy to be watching what he's watching. So naturally, I crawled over to him. He picked me up and he showed me what was so exciting. And it was actually crows, crows that were dive bombing our garbage cans. (laughs) And instead of being upset by this, he was just thrilled over it. He just, he pointed out to me how intelligent they were. And that's where my entire spark began. I became obsessed with birds, birds, birds. That is, I was going to say, that is quite the image. I kind of picture a video game being based on dive bombing yeah. crows. And so for, for listeners that aren't familiar with your organization, can you describe some of the work that you do? You know, how did raptors or how do raptors end up in your care? Absolutely. So A Place Called Hope was founded in 2007, and we specialize in predatory birds of prey, but we do also take care of the corvid family, which includes those crows, ravens, and blue jays. So we answer to distress calls across our state when a bird becomes injured or maybe gets separated from its family, orphaned, or if a bird becomes sick, and we uh, either rescue that bird ourselves or with our group of volunteers 
or somebody might pick up a distressed bird and bring it to our center. Our goal is to fix the problem, the situation, the injury, and get them back to the environment where they belong because it's our, our, it's our mission to preserve these wild creatures for the future. And what does that rehabilitation look like, especially for those who have a physical injury? Can anyone just bring them in and you can help take care of them? Or how does that look like? Yeah, that's, that's sort of how it works. Um, some of these birds, of course, being that they are predatory birds of prey and can be quite large, it's not always recommended that the public just pick them up because they have quite powerful weapon feet. They have talons on their toes and they use their feet to defend themselves. So we don't always have the public bring them to us, but I can't tell you how many times people are very brave when they come across an injured bird of prey and they decide to take it upon themselves to get them contained in some way, some fashion to get them out to us. So it's a mixture of two things. We, we have a group of 18 volunteers that actually go out in the field to rescue, as well as those brave people in the public who will follow instruction to get those animals to us. And, of course, the first thing we do is assess the injuries and go over the bird's body to find out what it is that's going on. And most of these birds are coming in, 98% actually, are coming in with injuries that are related to us human beings. So car strikes or vehicle collisions, that's the number one injury we deal with. And, of course, even a bald eagle, as large as they can be, or a turkey vulture, they are not big enough to withstand impact injuries from our vehicles in a lot of cases. So some of these birds, if they're going to make it, the rehab process can, you know, fluctuate from anywhere from a couple days to quite a few months. Well, Healing and, takes time. Right. And um, I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say we see a lot of, or you see a lot of injuries from vehicle crashes and, and human causes. What are some other causes that you're seeing that, I don't want to say it's typical, but what are you seeing mostly um, in terms of the injuries yeah. from these birds? So mostly, of course, it is the about 85% are the vehicle collisions. But what's creeping up after that right now for us personally at our center, of course, is the secondary poisoning cases. So we see a lot of that, whether it's rodenticide poisons or even, believe it or not, lead toxicosis. We have three current cases at our center being treated for lead toxicosis. So that's something that they pick up from lead fragments in the environment or in the animals that they're ingesting or eating or um, uh, in the gut piles left behind for, you know, when hunters hunt their deer game or a large game. Um, so that's a big issue that we're seeing more of. But some of the more typical things that someone might see in their own backyard would be window collisions. A lot of people don't think about how often these birds will strike windows or glass, and it can be very disruptive to a bird who does not understand something solid is there. And these birds, they see in the ultraviolet light spectrum. So one of the ways that we tell our, our, our listeners and our followers is uh, to avoid these window collisions is to consider the purchase of ultraviolet light markers, paint, or even stickers because they glow and show the bird something solid is there. Another big injury would be things like uh, garbage entanglements. We get a lot of that from fishing line to balloon ribbon to blueberry netting to um, any of the paper, uh, not paper, sorry, the plastic bags that people dispose of or even our face masks. We were starting to see some of that happen to some of the birds out there as well. And so... 
I'm sure many of us have had experience uh, hearing birds collide into the windows, and I'm sure you know, I get freaked out. I can't imagine what was going through their brains when when that's happening. Are there other incidences that we can help avoid in terms of our houses really being on their territories? Uh, well, um, putting up nesting platforms or nesting boxes for some of these uh, birds out there is a good way to get them away from the actual house itself. Putting your bird feeders a little bit far from the, the windows themselves. Although um, some people really like to use those suction cup window feeders and the songbirds will go right to the glass so you can watch them. That actually helps to break up that glass. Again, these birds don't recognize something solid is there. They either can see through it or they get dis, uh, disoriented by the the actual reflection from the sun or even the moon. And I know you have some experience with this, but can you talk about birds getting stuck in chimneys? Oh, yes. That's more common than people understand as well. If if you have a chimney stack and you don't have any kind of chimney cap on the top, that is a perfect cavity nesting spot for a lot of critters, not just birds. We typically will end up with calls with owls stuck in the fireplaces. They just kind of get stuck down into that nesting cavity spot. This time of year is real popular for them to do this because they're looking for cavity holes. The barred owl being um, one of the number one owl species that does this, as well as the eastern screech owl. Both of these species like to find holes or divots in trees to make their nesting spot. So that dark crevice looks appealing until they get in it and can't get out. So it can be a real problem, and and people will be in their homes hearing something, and they're not quite sure what's going on. Sometimes other animals, of course, can go in, um, including ducks and and other mammals. But in our case with these owls, usually it requires one of our rescuers to go out and kind of shine a light up and and feel around above the flue to grab the weaponed feet (laughs) of the raptor and carefully, cautiously pull the sooty bird out from the chimney. So I was going to say, so we we are going to get into the rodenticide section of our conversation in a little bit, but I also want to touch a little bit about bird flu because that is something that is now causing a problem. It's part of the issue. So how has that influence in terms of how you're able to take care of birds or to have volunteers come in to take care of them? It's been very challenging for us. Of course, this started really last year where we had to change everything in our normal protocol and routine. So we've had to introduce uh, very strong biosecurity and and keep that in place for every bird that comes in. And we're at a place called Hope. We're managing between five and 800 admits per year. And every year fluctuates, and it's somewhere within that range. So there's a lot of birds coming through our center. So each bird that comes in has to be treated as a possible potential carrier of this virus, especially if they're showing symptoms. So we had to design outside of our our main clinic, we had to design an isolation area away from everybody, as well as what we call our triage building, which is sort of our quarantine quarters. So these birds come in, we have to treat them as a potential positive. We have to be wearing our PPE. So we're back to like it's COVID all over again, wearing our masks and, you know, washing our hands and being very cautious about whatever has touched the bird. We do have access to um, what a rapid test, what we call a a quick in-house test. It's not 100%, but it does help us to kind of uh, isolate the, the virus itself. And if it comes back as a positive, 
um, we know that these birds are doomed because unfortunately for the species that we're catering to, we've not seen one of the avian influenza cases um, live past 12 to 14 hours. They usually die within six days, but the ones that have come to us, and we've had 16 cases since this started, um, don't make it. And can you tell us about some of the birds in your care right now? And is it your intention to eventually release some of the birds back into the wild? Yes, that's such a great question. I'm glad you asked that because the goal is to put them back into the environment where they belong. That's always what we're trying to do. Um, Some of them make it back and some of them don't because of the nature of their injuries. So we do have a crew of ambassador birds that live here permanently. They'll live out the rest of their lives with us. And those are the birds that we share with the public during public presentations. But the birds that we're trying to get back, of course, the goal is to get them out there as soon as possible. And with the avian influenza, we're finding that our rotation rate is a little quicker in some cases than it used to be. We used to have birds stay a lot longer during their healing process. But now the goal is to make room for the next one coming in because we are that busy. Um, Currently, right now, we have a bald eagle that is, um, today is day five. I'm really excited because... He came in very, very sick. He's grounded. He's very dirty. He's very skinny. And it ends up he's got lead toxicosis. So he's quite sick. And after the third day, we start to kind of feel a little bit less guarded um, where we think, okay, there's a chance the bird will make it. And we're on day five. So that's really exciting for us. But we know that he is still in critical condition. And we don't know if his body, his overall body condition will um survive the process. But that's the goal. We'll get them better and get them back home, especially now. This is the worst time of year for any of these birds to become injured in any way because nesting is happening. We've got families out there. We've got moms on eggs. We've got babies that have just hatched. So it's really critical we work fast. And so, you know, we've been talking about the different injuries that could potentially bring these birds to your your center and, and also with bird flu. And so on top of that, we are also dealing with rodenticide. And I believe the last time you were on the show, it seemed to just be the start of the problems that we saw with rodenticide and how they're impacting the raptor population. Can you talk about how what rodenticide is and how birds end up ingesting it? Absolutely. So rodenticides, there are quite a few different um, poisons out there, but the ones we're focusing on today are, are what we call anticoagulant rodenticides. There are two classifications. There's something called first-generation anticoagulant rodenticides and another classification called second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides. Both of these work with an anticoagulant factor. So the ingredients actually inhibit the body's ability to produce or recycle vitamin K. Now, vitamin K is something that we all have within our bodies and it helps us to clot our own blood or make our blood thick. Or if we get a little minor cut, we can stop bleeding by getting a little scab. Um, When you are on an overdose of anticoagulant, you cannot have your blood thicken. So basically you bleed out, whether it's externally from a minor cut or even a major cut or internally or even just from bumping yourself with a bruise, you can continue to bleed. So anticoagulants work by uh, making the animal hemorrhage. And after time, usually it takes about two to 10 days for the animal who's ingested these ingredients to succumb to these awful effects. Um, In that two to day 
two to 10 day period, they become more disoriented, um, they become lethargic, and they're, they're confused, and they're not as aware of their surroundings. Now, of course, these rodenticides, um, the, the name is in the title, rodents, rodenticides. These rodenticides are meant to target nuisance rodents, like rats or mice. But the problem is, because it takes two to ten days for the animal to succumb to the effects, they don't die at the bait stations where the poison is placed. So they go off back into the environment where they become food for predatory animals. It's not just birds of prey across the state, across the nation, or across our planet, actually. But since we are a bird rehabilitation center specializing in predatory birds, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the negative impact this is having on our birds of prey. And they're the ones who are our natural predator, you know, to take care of rodent issues. These guys are designed to eat rodents. And they're eating their their designed meal. They're eating what they're supposed to be eating, and they're dying because of it, because they're ingesting those rodenticides secondhand. Now, back in the 1940s and 1950s, when first generation was developed, um, it was quite effective um, at that time. But over time, like a lot of the ingredients of, of uh, poisons out there, over time, they start to lose their effectiveness on the targeted animal because they start to adjust and adapt. So mice and rats, they decided to adapt to these poisons and they, they weren't being as effective. So that's when second-generation anticoagulants were designed and developed. There's only four ingredients. They were uh, put together in the 1970s, and they were designed to be more potent, more dangerous, and more deadly. And whereas the first-generation ingredients take the animal, um, the animal must eat about its own body weight. They have to eat a, uh, a bunch more of this poison. They have to actually ingest it where it has a cumulative effect. The second-generation anticoagulants don't work like that. It only takes one feeding. So while that animal, let's just say it's a rat, who is eating that second-generation anticoagulants, he goes off after he's filled his belly. He goes off and does whatever he does out in the environment. He comes back for more because he's not going to start to get sick right away. He's not going to die right away after ingesting that poison. But that dose from that one feeding will be enough to kill him. So in other words, he's coming back to that bait station to eat even more poison, becoming even more potent for the predator who's likely going to find him kind of disoriented and lethargic out in the wild. So predators are designed to actually um, look for animals that are debilitated. This is the perfect storm for our birds of prey. When I think what you just described is such a complicated complicated cycle, and it's not something new, but in fact developed through decades and decades of um, of sort of uh, policies and as well as the rodenticide itself. And are there treatments for for birds when they come across this, or what is that like now? Yes, that's an excellent question too, because. Back in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, um, with the first-generation anticoagulants, by the way, these are the ones that are on the store shelves for the public to purchase. So any of the rodenticide products that you can find um, in your hardware store are likely from the first-generation classification. So back when those were more popular, we had a better chance at treating our wildlife 
I'm not going to say that they all get to us in time because you have to think like a wild animal. They're out there masking their symptoms, trying to behave as normal as possible so they don't get preyed upon themselves. So it's not every case that becomes sick from eating or ingesting these poisons that makes it to a wildlife center where they can receive treatment. It's more likely that a cat or a dog, a domesticated pet, or even a small child, God forbid, um, gets treatment right away. And the treatment is actually what we call vitamin K therapy. It's vitamin K injections. If we get the animal in time before the damage is too severe and they're not already bleeding out from all of their organs or they're not already in any kind of seizure activity or cardiac shock, then we can actually try to reverse it with those vitamin K injections. Our likelihood of having that happen um, is more so with first generation. We have not been able to save one of the uh, victims to second generation to date. There's nothing we can do because the damage is so severe. They are so deadly. Well, that's a very severe note on that. And I want to rewind a little bit just to ask, too, you know, you mentioned that the birds kind of pretend like everything is okay when everything is not. So can you talk about what are the symptoms that a bird um, has ingested as a second generation anticoagulant? Like, How do you know that that's what they have had? Okay, so basically, um, symptoms can mimic a lot of other symptoms. So that's why, like, like I said before, with the avian influenza, when they come in, we treat them as a positive until we can rule things out. It's the same with our rodenticide um, suspects. So when they come in, typically what we're finding are birds that have been grounded. They have this faraway look. They're not really fast with their reactions, so they're slowed down. Their senses are dulled. Um, next, what we would do on a bird like that, that we're not seeing any obvious injuries, we would take a little tiny bit of blood from the talon. We clip the talon just like you would with a dog nail. We get a drop of blood, we put it on a slide, and we set it aside with a timer. Blood usually dries up in that form in three to four minutes. If it's still liquid after three to four minutes, then you can start to say, oh, uh uh-oh, this might be an anticoagulant. It's not really all that scientific, but it's the only way for us to know if we're dealing with anticoagulant from the blood itself. So the other things that we look for, if let's say we find the blood has not dried up, is we look on the body of the bird for bruising and bleeding under the skin, and we listen to their lungs, their respiratory system, because the blood starts to pool and affects their breathing. So usually what we find with the positive cases are um, lots of uh, bruising underneath the feathers. We wet the feathers down and push them aside in the belly area, and that's where we'll notice the blood that's just basically pooling up underneath their skin. It's very, very sad, very sad to watch. And at that point, when we see that blood pooling underneath the skin, we know that we are likely too late. You've been listening to Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope. Coming up, she'll be staying with us and we'll be talking about how rodenticide gets into the wider ecosystem and if there are any federal regulations to control it. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking with Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope about how she first became interested in helping animals, specifically rehabilitating birds of prey. And we're continuing our chat about how birds are affected by rodenticide. I actually want to bring in uh, Tom Anderson from the Connecticut Audubon Society real quick um, for some questions on what's going on with uh, the Audubon Society. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. It's doing a quick jump. And so, Tom, just wanted to ask, um, what are some of your reactions to what Christine has been talking about? You've been following the conversation anywhere from rodenticide to bird flu to just rehabilitation. You know, what are some of the things that jumped out to you? Yeah, well, the, the rodenticide thing is is really important. And it's timely right now because the General Assembly in Hartford is considering a bill that would ban ban those second generation um, rodenticides. Um, we we've, we're obviously supporting that that bill, and we did an action alert last week among our members to to persuade our members to write to their state senators. Um, and I, I I think over a couple of days we got about six hundred emails sent to the to the General Assembly to try to get that bill passed and strengthened. Um, I have I haven't heard in the days since then what the status of it is, but um, it's it's a it's a really important bill. And if people are listening, they should um, uh, they should contact their state senators because the the bill is in the state Senate right now and it needs to be called to the floor for a vote. And we will be coming back to talking about the potential regulation on what Tom just mentioned. But we have Christine back on the line and want to start with, uh, we've got some questions about the fact that we have a large rodent population problem here in Connecticut. You know, Christine, what are some solutions to controlling the rodent pop, uh, problem that you can share with us? Absolutely. I'd love to share that. Now, what people don't always um, stop to think about is the fact that the reason why the rodents are there in the first place. So getting down to the root cause, which always has to do with three things. It's either going to have to do with food source, nesting material, or water, shelter, those kinds of things. So when we clean up an area where the food is being, you know, free-for-all food is being provided for these rodents, then you're going to see a decrease in some of these populations. So it's really important to clean the area up, make sure there's no access to the food, no access to shelter, no access to water or nesting material. 
So the other thing that goes along with sanitation is something called exclusion, where you can either hire a company or um, if you're handy yourself, you can start to put up um, things like mesh wire to block some of the entrance entrance or exit spots so you can act, um, limit the access to the structures themselves. So there's all kinds of different methods, and you can use that stainless steel to kind of pack around pipes. And you just want to make sure that you cut back some of the shrubbery, um, make sure you don't have that um, ivy covering because rodents really love that. They can hide and tunnel through that and get to the foundations of buildings, seal off the foundations. Um, of course, I think we just lost Christine real quick, but that's okay. We're going to um, take a quick call from Christopher, who does have a question for Christine, but we'll see if we can get your question answered. Christopher, you are on the line. Well, thank you very much. So I am calling from Sharon. We live on the banks of the Housatonic River. We have a substantial rodent infection, mice, not rats, uh, and a, a, an exterminator that comes to the house regularly. And when I've asked him about secondary killings of um, raptors, he says, oh, no, this uh, poison that we're living using doesn't last very long. It's not a big problem and so forth. Listening to this, I now doubt his word. Uh, and so what I really want to ask is, what sort of questions should I be asking the exterminator to figure out whether or not I am, in fact, contributing to the problem? Well, thank you so much for that question, Christopher. Uh, Tom from the Connecticut Audubon Society. Tom, can you answer that question? I, I would ask him to show me the label of the uh, of the rodenticide he's using and um, take out your iPhone or a camera and take a photo of it and, and then go online and, and double check. Thank you so much for that, Tom. And we have Christine back. Uh, welcome back, Christine. Something Hi. is up in the air today, speaking yes. of birds, yeah. right? And so, you know, we've been talking about all kinds of issues, you know, going from rodenticide to bird flu and, and everything in between. Um, are you seeing any more birds getting impacted by this? You know, how much of the raptor, raptor population is being impacted? And are we seeing a raptor decline? Okay, so at a place called Hope, so far to date, we have actually submitted 54 specimens, and we only started testing these birds back in 2021 because of the money and the fees associated with the tests. So each one of these specimens goes into Yukon and has what we call a necropsy. It's kind of like a um, an autopsy for humans, but it's a necropsy for animals, and they try to um, figure out the cause of death. And then from there, the livers of the animals, the specimens, are sent out to Michigan State University where they can determine what ingredients are responsible in the anticoagulant family. And out of the 54 tests, we still have five tests pending. So we have 49 completed tests. And out of the 49 tests, we have 40 that have tested positive for one or more of the ingredients of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides. 
that's a pretty sobering number. All of these birds, all of these specimens were deceased and had to be submitted that way. Like I was talking about earlier about the vitamin K therapy, um, we can't really tell which ingredients by putting a drop of blood on a slide or by looking at the symptoms because anticoagulants work in the same manner. So for us, we just do our best guess. And the only way for us to know if it's first generation or second generation is by submitting the, the deceased bodies. So out of those 49 tests that are completed, only two of them had first generation as well as the second generation in their bodies. I came in on the tail end of a question about how do you know if what your um, pest management professional is telling you is is true. Um, I, I agree with what Tom said about reading the label and going online and looking that up. But I want to also add that poison is poison. There's absolutely no such thing as a safe poison. I don't care what they're trying to paint it to be like. Poison has never worked. And when poisons are applied to any rodent situation, the rodent's response after the initial die-off is to create procreate, make more babies. So it never solves the problem. All it's doing is actually managing the problem. It just perpetuates the cycle because the rodents keep coming back and the poison has to be keep um, up, has to be keep, has to keep being applied. So every time it's put out there and it has a little bit of a die-off, then there's an explosion in the population. And then that die-off has to happen again. And it's pretty much a a four-week cycle for the service contract. So the thing to ask your rodent professional is to please use the sanitation and exclusion methods. Now, sanitation exclusion work takes a little bit more work on the front end, but for the long-term results, it is really the way to go because it solves the actual problem itself. And once you've got the actual sanitation cleaned up areas and the exclusion work in place, all the non-toxic safe alternatives can come into play and become more effective. So there are some new methods out there, some new technologies out there that are just brilliant, like something called smart technology products. There are these um, technology product companies that actually come out and assess the area with these sensors where they actually can put these products underneath city streets or above in houses or commercial buildings where they actually learn the cycle of the rodent and the pathways they're most prominent in, and then they put their traps down. These traps are internet um, connected, so they know when the traps are full, so they can actually empty the traps every time that they're full, which is brilliant because rats in particular don't go anywhere near where their um, deceased relatives are. And then um, it's, it's a great way to solve uh, big infestation problems, as well as this is my favorite fertility control. I know it sounds funny. It's birth control for rodents, but it's not hormone-based, and the goal is not to make them sterile. It's actually to make them less fertile. So fertility control products are made from natural ingredients that have to be applied every four weeks, and that's a wonderful fix for pest management professionals because it actually works in all the pilot studies and all the people that have been using these products to date 
it's got a 96% success rate in knocking back the population where it's more manageable. And it's safe. It doesn't have a secondary effect on our predatory animals. It's a wonderful fix to a huge problem and something that as it becomes more popular and more um, used by by the public, I think it's going to end up being something that has a lot of different companies that will be supplying these services as well as these products. It's a great fix. Well, and speaking of you know products and with questions about labeling and what to look for and how what residents can do to sort of protect their space, not only physical but also their health, we also want to talk about policy. You know, Tom Anderson uh, has spoke about it a little bit earlier, based on reporting by the Hartford Current. You know, second generation anticoagulant rodenticides. Uh, faced an outright ban in the Connecticut General Assembly earlier this session. You know, how did that turn out? Do you have any updates for us or any background that you can share? Yes. So the um, the champion of this bill is uh, Senator Christine Cohen. She happens to be part of um, our district here where a place called Hope is um, located in Killingworth. Um, she did have the proper ver- verbiage in this particular bill, which was to ban the use and the sale of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides statewide. And the reason why we say the use and the sale is because right now, as second-generation anticoagulants are concerned, they're actually regulated by the U.S. EPA. So only licensed professionals are supposed to be the ones that have these products in their um, possession. So you're not allowed to actually go and buy them off the store shelves. That's why it's the first generation in the regular stores. But there is a loophole on the Internet. So the state of Connecticut, of course, wants to see that loophole closed so the public can't purchase these products. But again, for us, um, we don't see that being really the answer to this problem because this these poisons are being overused. Even It doesn't matter who's using them, whether it's a professional or a homeowner or a farmer. It's what is involved in the ingredients and what it's doing and the far-reaching effects that it's having on everybody out there, including us humans. It's leaching into our soil. It's leaching into our water. There are studies that you can read about that have been compiled very conveniently for all of us through uh, an organization called Raptors Are the Solution. Raptors Are the Solution is based in California, and they actually have on their website scientific evidence. You can click on that tab, and there's study after study after study proving how bad and deadly this is worldwide. This is not just in Connecticut. It's all across the globe. Of course, our goal with Bill 962 is to see these um, banned entirely in our state. And unfortunately, in order for that to move out of the environmental committee, the verbiage was weakened. It was watered down. And the way it stands currently, it is not going to do anything to um, make any difference. So I know that this coming Wednesday, there's something that's going to happen um, with that bill and the verbiage, and they're working on it. So it's critical that we all write to our environmental committee and our, our legislators, um, letting them know that we support the, the uh, bill, SB 962, with stronger verbiage to ban the use and the sale of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, which are the most deadly, potent, and dangerous ingredients on the market. Well, thanks so much for that update. We will be sure to keep our eye on that. You've been listening to Christine Cummings. She's the executive director of A Place Called Hope. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today, Christine. 
I am so happy to have been able to offer some information on this topic. It it has really become something that is um, my passion to see this happen, to ban them in the state, uh, to save so many of these predatory creatures. They are just the most amazing beings, and we really need them. We really need to protect our, our wildlife and our environment. This is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. Coming up next, we're going to hear from a journalist from WCAI in Massachusetts who's been reporting on construction waste and how some companies are paving the way to do better recycling. Stay with us. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. And to continue our conversation is Eve Zakov. She's a climate and environmental journalist for CAI, and she's here to talk about the impacts of construction waste. Eve, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Honestly, I'm having one of those moments where I'm like, this is a huge area when it comes to waste, and I just never think about it until I read your report. So, Eve, can you talk about how did you get the story idea and uh, the process of you learning about the amount of construction waste that's produced every year? Was it a surprise to you? Oh, my gosh, absolutely it was. I think it will be to most people. I can't wait to kind of roll that out slowly here in this conversation. Um, But to drum it up a little bit before we get there, um, this story came to me um, a little bit randomly. My my editor was having a conversation with someone at his kid's school dance, uh, and they said, have you heard of this company on Cape Cod called Waste Knot? Um, They are this, they take recycling, they recycle uh, construction materials from homes before they're torn down. And he said, I never heard of this. Our climate environment reporter, Eve Zukoff, would love to hear about this. And he was right. So I spent the day with this company called Waste Knot. I have so much more to say about uh, the women who run that company. Um, But basically, it it introduced me to this world of construction and demolition waste. And um, yeah, drum roll, please, here for the number. 30 to 40% of what ends up in our landfills is just construction and demolition waste. And that's everything from the carpets that you rip out of your house when you get a new set of kitchen cabinets. It's obviously a bigger project. Um, you know, it's it's new floorboards. It's so many things that we kind of, uh, many people can exchange in their homes without really thinking twice about the waste, but it it really adds up in our landfills. I was going to do a drum roll sound, but I didn't think I was going to be able to do that stat justice. So <laughs> did not go there. Uh, but you mentioned the women that you, you talked to for Waste Not. And yes, let's definitely drum roll on that. And can you tell us about that experience and what do they do? Yeah. So there are these two women uh, named uh, Anne and Liz um, who live on Cape Cod. And, and basically they uh, had worked in the construction industry as developers for 25 years in kind of greater Boston area, and they would build new apartments and kind of do all kinds of traditional developer activities. And when they both moved to Cape Cod, they had just this lifetime of experience realizing, oh my God, there were so many times where we would go into a building to do a gut renovation and we would just throw away all of this stuff that could be put to better use um, by somebody who who needs it. And so I spent uh, a good amount of time, a full day with Ann and Liz seeing kind of soup to nuts, a a bunch of different things that they do. I I didn't get a a chance to go with them to a job site where they actually tear everything out of a house, but they took me to their storage garage where they keep so many of the things that they pull out of homes. Um, And so it's this storage garage that's just filled with 
bathroom vanities in perfect condition, new fridges, uh, a two-year-old uh, boiler was there, it was just in perfect condition, uh, transom windows, antique doors, I mean, you name it, this, this garage was stuck to the brim. Um, and I also went with them to a woman's home. And this woman uh, had been given a bunch of materials by Aunt, Aunt and Liz um, to build uh, an in-law suite for her mother, who has Parkinson's, who was going to move into her home soon, and a little playhouse in, in her backyard for her children and foster children. And did you learn how did Anne and Liz get into this? Because I, I feel like like a lot of things, it feels very self-explanatory, but it had to it, t- it took the two women to sort of explore this and turn it into like a real thing. Yeah, I mean, and so what they're doing, the technical term for it is is deconstruction. That's what they're experts in. Um, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, just doing construction for so many years, I think it it kind of caught up to them and they were like, we can do something else. Um, and, and the real drive, the thing that, as they said, gets them to a freezing cold job site in the middle of winter um, is to get materials that they're pulling out of these homes to people who need them. Uh, they were telling me just stories upon stories of, of the people who end up inheriting these perfectly good materials that are pulled from homes. So the day that I was with them, they said, oh yeah, you see those massive Anderson sliding glass doors? Um, those are going to a local firefighter. He's a veteran. He's coming to pick those up later today for a house that he just, first time home homeowner that he just bought. Um, they had given a bunch of materials to a single mom uh, who had three kids. They got her, her dishwasher broke, and that's a big expense. So they went over there with a new dishwasher, a brand new dishwasher, basically. So I think that is um, what keeps them going. But this idea of deconstruction, they didn't invent it. It's actually bigger on the West Coast is what they were telling me. Uh, there's m- much more of kind of a community out there and actually some local bylaws that require much more deconstruction-minded uh, activities, especially in the uh, building world. Um, and so th- I think they they kind of saw what was going on and didn't see anything in, in our community and just realized uh, we will not make nearly as much money as as we did in the construction world, but this is important. We can make a difference in our community this way. And did you get a gist of how much they were able to sort of salvage or recycle? And do they resell it or donate it? Or what does that look like? Yeah, the way that their business works is uh, about 90% of what they pull from homes is um, donated. And that's kind of a very important part of this, because the way that this is financially worthwhile for homeowners that want to do a deconstruction on their home or beach home um, is that you can get a tax write-off if you donate um, for everything you donate. So Ann and Liz, most of what they are able to pull out of a home that's being deconstructed goes straight to um, a resale shop in Western Massachusetts. It's loaded onto, you know, 26 foot trucks shipped there right away. And then some of what they're able to pull out goes to their storage garage where I was with them. Um, And that's often the stuff that they say, we want to keep this here because we know this is going to fly out of here. Like fridges are always really helpful to keep around. Um, Yeah, dishwashers, they said they keep dishwashers. They can't keep dishwashers for more than a couple days at a time. So they keep those, but 90%, yeah, of what's coming out of these homes is, is donated. And 
they're, they're able to pull up an enormous amount. Like I was asking them to quantify for me, what, what are you getting exactly? And they said they've pulled up over an acre of hardwood flooring and diverted it from uh, landfills in the last several years since they started this company, just 2017. They've saved roughly 570 kitchen cabinets and 500 windows. Those are bigger items, but sometimes they'll even go into homes. And, you know, I'm talking to you from Cape Cod, where we have an incredible disparity between the wealthiest and the poorest people who live here. And the wealthiest people can buy beachfront properties um, and then gut them completely and turn them into beautiful, beautiful mansions by the sea. Uh, and sometimes they were telling me they'll go into those and, you know, that home before um, they'll they'll open up a um a little closet and there will still be linens or in the middle of you know the kitchen inside a cabinet there will be martini glasses so they're pulling everything from you know incredibly heavy boilers to martini glasses out of homes that sounds like the most amazingly ridiculous yard sale that could ever <laughs> happen. And I mean, that's so much flooring and so many kitchen cabinets. I cannot, I cannot believe it. But I think yeah. it, it, I, you paint a great picture because I think it really shows us the sort of the enormity of what they're able to to salvage and and mm-hmm. what we're actually using for you know these properties. Should we be changing the materials that we use in construction and rethink how we build houses? especially, you know, focusing on preserving existing buildings and so not constructing new ones. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. This is something I talked at length um, about with with Felix Heisel from Cornell. And he was saying, you know, deconstruction is great, but before we even get to deconstruction, what we should be doing is looking at buildings uh, and homes that exist. And instead of tearing them down, our first question should be, okay, well, maybe that building is at the end of its useful life in this capacity, but how can we adapt it to be something else? How do we keep the structure there, keep the, the kitchen in this spot, but build an extra room or build, you know, add something to a building rather than tearing down an enormous amount and using new materials for it. Um, so the first thing we should be looking to do is just adapt a building. And then I think another part of his work, because he's looking at every part of a building's life cycle is when we are building a new building or when we do decide to adapt and we're bringing in new materials, how do we choose materials that um, take in uh, the building's entire, uh, you know, next 20, 30, 40, ideally 50, 100 years of it being up? So how do we install carpeting that isn't put down with toxic glues and adhesives? like? There are ways to have better versions of so many of the materials that we use, and that's new materials, but also, again, even better is secondhand materials. If there's a building that has to be torn down, how do we really carefully do what Ann and Liz do and, you know, pry up each uh, floorboard individually so that that can go into a new Sorry, um, sorry, Eve. I do have to uh, interrupt just because we're running out of time. Um, oh, sure. No I'm sorry. You've been listening to Eve Zuckoff. <laughs> she's a climate and environmental journalist for CEI, and she's been reporting on the impacts on construction waste. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Corey Princell of the New England News Collaborate- Collaboration contributed to this report. Thank you so much for listening today. <laughs>